It's still a pretty good value, I think. Uh, and there's a basket at each table where people can put their money. And it would be great if one person would be the treasurer. So when we come to pick it up, the accurate amount is in there. I'd just like to uh, tell you that it's a 30 minutes presentation time and uh, then we eat and then uh, question period is starting at one o'clock. There's uh, some little pieces of paper and pens at each table. Uh, we're doing a quick survey today uh, to see uh, what does SACPA mean to you. And, uh, but we won't do it, you know, you don't have to write it down during the presentation. We don't want to take attention away, but we'll explain a little bit more about it uh, as soon as the presentation is over. Uh, so just relax on that. Getting to uh, the topic today, grandfather's trout, grandkids' memories. Perspective over time for Alberta's fish populations. It is an issue for sure for people that go fishing. And uh, not only that, but for everyone else. Lauren Fitz, uh, a well-known Southern Alberta biologist, uh, is doing the talking. And he grew up on a, on a farm in central Alberta. <coughs> but he left the par farm uh, many years ago, but his experience of uh, living on the land has stayed with him. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Lauren up here and uh, give him a warm applause. He's, gonna, he's not going to tell you about the big one that got away. He's going to tell you about the big one that isn't there anymore. Thanks, Knut. Mark Twain once said, don't tell fish stories where people know the fish, and don't tell them where people know you. So I'm going to violate that almost immediately. And I want to tell you a fish story that I think has relevance even if you're not a fisherman. And I'm going to explain why that's the case near the end of the presentation. I'm going to tell you what I've learned about cumulative effects and shifting benchmarks. Both of those things have had profound impacts on natural resources, not to the least, our fish populations. To, uh, to give you a little bit of a sense of uh, shifting benchmarks, and I know this is a profoundly bad thing to do just before you're going to eat, <laughs> but we all come into the world thinking that we've got a full pie's worth of resources at our disposal. But the reality is is that that pie has been sliced many times before we come into the world and it continues to get sliced. And that sense that we have of a full pie is really the syndrome of shifting benchmarks. It's also about the changes that have happened in the world that perhaps we haven't paid attention to. And you know, something like this, for those of you who have had a toothache, you probably yearn for the days when there was cocaine tooth drops. Well, they aren't available anymore, even under prescription, but it does tell us that the world has changed and changed profoundly, and it's the case with the natural world as well. 
One of the things that we have at our disposal is a rich treasure trove of anecdotal information, starting with the Northwest Mounted Police, who were asked in their myriad duties to also take account of the natural resources of the country they had come into. And this is what one of the people wrote. He was based in Calgary, but he had come out with the first contingent of the Northwest Mounted Police in 1876. He said, when I fished first about 14 years ago, this is 1876, the rivers teemed with fish. Now it is much different. So these changes, these profound changes that were happening to our landscape happened a long time ago and have continued to happen, but we may not have paid attention to them. The fish that he was talking about are comprised of essentially these three species, bull trout on top, mountain whitefish in the middle, and west slope cutthroat trout on the bottom. Those were the primary species in all of our eastern slope streams. This gives you a sense of what fishing was like in the Bow River, 1884 in Calgary, and also a sense of what Calgary looked like in 1884. Probably the last time you could get parking in downtown Calgary. <laughs> well, that's the situation in modern times. Native trout don't exist in the Bow River in Calgary. They've been supplanted by introduced species like rainbow trout. This is probably one of the first images that we have of fishing in southern Alberta from Callum Creek. Callum Creek flows into the Old Man River. It parallels Highway 22 near the Whaleback. And those people are hawking out big bull trout. Bull trout don't exist in Callum Creek anymore. Here's a picture from Trout Creek. Trout Creek is a little stream that's a tributary to, the Will to Willow Creek, flows off of the east flank of the Porcupine Hills. And in 1902, those guys have about 125 pounds of cutthroat trout based on one day's fishing. Here's an article from the Calgary Herald uh, from a couple of anglers that went out in Fish Creek, now Fish Creek Provincial Park, no doubt, and came back with 400 fish. Not bad for a day's fishing. Is a vignette from a little further south from the North Valley River. That's a picture frame. The frame is made by bull trout in the interior portion or cutthroat trout. Gives some sense of not only the size but the numbers in our watersheds. Here's a, a picture of some bull trout caught probably in Lee Creek by Cardston anglers. And the uh, young man in his father's lap is looking up wondering why his father is wearing a bull trout for a hat, I'm sure. This <clears throat> gives some sense of not only the numbers, but the size of fish. This was a bull trout caught in 1920 where Mill Creek runs into the Castle River. It's estimated that that bull trout was 18 pounds. Uh, it's no wonder young children weren't allowed near the water in those days. Now, we don't necessarily need the pictures of fish to assure ourselves of the size of fish. All you have to do is look at the size of the rods in those days to get an impression of how big the fish were. And sadly, equestrian-based fishing has largely gone out of style these days. <laughs> but it does tell you something about how easy it was to catch fish from the back of a horse. Now, in that era, things were changing. 
Logging was a predominant land use activity on the landscape, even starting in the late 1800s in our watersheds, particularly in the eastern slopes. This is a log jam that happened on the Highwood River, apparently it was over three miles long. It gives some sense of the uh, number of uh, logs that were hauled out of these watersheds. And of course, the primary way of getting those logs to market was waters, waterways. This is a log boom on, in, in Lethbridge on the Old Man River, again, expressing the way that logs were moved around in those days before roads and particularly railroads. So land use activities were happening early on our landscape. It included grazing and in the uh, early days of grazing, particularly in the forest reserve, there was a mandate to graze it heavily to reduce the fire hazard. And by God they did, right down to the nubs. And so this is the flanks of Crow's Nest Mountain. You might think about this picture the next time you drive past Crow's Nest Mountain and see its wooded flanks. And of course, this was a time of settlement. This was the time that my grandparents moved into central Alberta homestead. And so the changes that were happening on the streams outside of the eastern slopes were profound as well, and perhaps even more profound than what the changes were within the eastern slopes. And it was at that time that initial concerns about the fishery became prevalent. The federal government hosted this Dominion Fisheries Commission in 1910 and 11 and had people go around to various localities, including Lethbridge and Fort McLeod in Calgary, to test the waters, to say the least, to see what the fishing uh, status was. And people told them, it's not like it used to be. Things have changed. And there's a whole bunch of things happening that are profound and that are negative related to the fisheries resource. One of the things that jumps out in my mind was the comment that 20 years before this commission, cutthroat trout were 100 to 1 in terms of other fish species, and now they are nearly exterminated. That commission also heard from many people that the indigenous fish, particularly West Slope cutthroat trout, were worthy of presentation. And so people were calling for, for preservation of fisheries resources as early as 1910 and 11. So this is not a new issue. And of course, things were continuing to change in the watersheds. The power that runs this computer and our lights uh, started to be uh, generated by damming of rivers, particularly in the Bow River watershed. Uh, this one on the Kananaskis River in 1913 gives an impression of how early some of these changes were happening. Now, those changes had some profound effects. The cost of lighting up our room with the damming of rivers in the Kananaskis and Spray Valley was, this was a catch of bull trout in the Kananaskis Valley before dams exterminated the bull trout population of that watershed. And here's a picture of cutthroat trout from the Spray Valley before it was dammed for hydroelectric purposes. So these provide benchmarks, bookends, to help us understand what this landscape was like and the cornucopia of resources that were produced from these landscapes. Of course, the uh, discovery of oil and gas in the Turner Valley field started a succession of changes in Alberta, which we haven't seen the end of yet today. 
And if you think off-highway vehicle activity is a new thing, well, it's not. It's just that the intensity and frequency of the activity was much lower in earlier times. Now, fish populations declined. I think you're getting that message. And there was a cry from people that fish populations needed to be helped. And so initially, native populations were tapped. Uh, they were stocked back into the watersheds, but people didn't think they had the, the right sporting qualities. And so species like rainbow trout, brown trout, and brook trout were brought in because in the minds of many sportsmen, these were more pleasant species with better qualities. And so one of the things that happened, particularly with one of our native species, West Slope cutthroat trout, is that the planting of rainbow trout, these are two genera that are very, or genera or species that are very close together. And I, I guess I can speak about this in an, in an adult audience. They practice unsafe sex together. And so they, the hybrids that are produced aren't as viable for the landscape as the original cutthroat population is. The other thing was is that we got a hate on for some species like bull trout. Bull trout are our provincial fish species, by the way. And here is a uh, plea from one of the uh, fish and game associations for the provincial government to dynamite the hell out of those bull trout in the streams that they exist to protect the newly stocked rainbow trout population. So we, had, we developed this antipathy towards native species which is still harbored in certain circles. And then there were cumulative effects. The uh, Crow's Nest watershed, I think, is one of the exemplary examples of the effects of cumulative impacts of land use activities, starting with the exploration for coal in the late 1800s, the mining, the residential development, the uh, channelizing of the Crow's Nest River to accommodate that residential development, coal mining activities in many of the tributaries, coal processing in the river valley, uh, roads and trails that had a propensity to wash out on a regular basis, and the impact on a very unique population of bull trout was this. They disappeared. So from the Pleistocene to 1965, bull trout thrived in the Crow's Nest watershed and other places, and after that, they are now gone. We don't honor them, unfortunately. We should have a tombstone out in the Crow's Nest Pass that it has these words on it. Now, one of the things that most of us would acknowledge is that we have poor memories. Uh, some of us can't remember what we had for breakfast. Some of us can't remember what the landscape looked like five years ago, ten years ago, or longer. So this is an archival shot taken by a survey crew in 1890 on the banks of Willow Creek, probably in the area of Staveley. Now, even if you don't appreciate anything else about landscape and landscape health, you notice that there's a, a rich, luxuriant growth of trees and shrubs in that valley. Uh, the valley is uh, probably a pretty good trout habitat. And in fact, this archival shot from 1902 with these smiling fellows. I, fishermen dressed better in those days, by the way. <laughs> They're holding 40 pounds of cutthroat trout caught from the confluence of Willow Creek and the Old Man River near Fort McLeod. 
from a landscape that looked very much like that scene did in 1890. Well, I had the opportunity to work on Willow Creek many years ago, and I found that same location. That's what it looks like today. So profound changes. There are no trout, native or otherwise, left in the lower portions of Willow Creek. The point is, history marches on. History wasn't made yesterday, it's still being made today. And so those changes that have happened on the landscape that we view as historic are still part of today's changes that happen on the landscape. The roads and trails that we've built to extract timber and coal and oil and gas still exist. They are coming near the end of their active lifespan, they wash out. Uh, sediment bleeds into the water on a regular basis and, and yet we uh, have this need to think that we need more access into these watersheds. If, if I can impart to you a simple mantra about what native trout need, it's this. They need cold water, they need clean water, they need complex systems, and they need to be connected with one another so that if tragedies befall, they can repopulate themselves. That's the simple mantra. Well, this is what we're now doing to our watersheds. They're now warmer, dirtier, they're simpler, and they're fragmented. And that has a profound negative impact on fish populations, as well as a lot of other desirable virtues of our eastern slopes. It's not just the sediment that you can see in the water that's the issue. It's the sediment that becomes entrained into the substrate that fills in all the spaces that the aquatic invertebrates live, where the trout lay their eggs, where these eggs incubate and eventually hatch. In fact, watersheds that have been impacted by things like logging are now so impacted by sediment that a trout would need a pickaxe to break through the sediment that now glues the substrate materials together. This is uh, a couple of, a time step on Hidden Creek. Hidden Creek is in the headwaters of the Old Man River. It is the epicenter, or it was the epicenter, for bull trout spawning activities for the upper Old Man watershed. In 2012, you can see it's clear. Actually, there are a couple of bull trout spawning right in this area, right there. After logging in 2013 and the flood of 2013, now bull trout populations have plummeted from a hundred spawning reds or places where that uh, bull trout lay their eggs to a low of 15. So this is a tremendous drastic drop in bull trout populations in one of the epicenters for their spawning. The point is, is that we have come to this point in time where we think we can do everything everywhere all the time, anytime and that multiple use philosophy for our eastern slopes has not served us well, unless of course you're extracting dollars out of it. And so we can't proceed in the future thinking that we can do everything out there and still have clean water and still have native trout. One of the reasons is that the proliferation of our landscape footprint, our land use footprint, is such that every time it rains, every time the snow melts, this is what happens. 
So this stream turned from gin clear and during a summer thunder shower to that shade of brown in 10 minutes because of the linear disturbance, the amount of roads and trails in that watershed that bleed sediment into that watershed on a regular basis. So I'm going to take you on a little trip just to give you an aerial perspective. This is a Google image of Racehorse and Dutch Creek, their tributaries to the Old Man River, and I'm going to home in on just one portion of the headwaters of Dutch Creek to give you a sense of what the land use footprint looks like. We have not spared much in that watershed. And as a consequence of that, native fish populations have plummeted in this watershed and in others. Oops. The point is many of us don't see it. We don't get out there. And sometimes even if we do get out there, we don't recognize it. And I think that's one of the purposes of talking to you so that you can begin to recognize some of these issues because they are real issues, not just for fish, but for us. And I think Ogden Nash hit it right on the nose. Progress might have been all right once, but it went on too long. And I think that's the issue with our eastern slopes and it's what impacts native fish populations. Too much progress. So as a consequence, bull trout, our provincial fish species, is threatened. It's designated as threatened both by the province and by the federal government. That means it's one step away from endangered and endangered is one step away from gone. The uh, two primary spawning areas for bull trout were Hidden Creek in the Upper Old Man and Mill Creek in the castle. And just as a plug for the castle park, one of the first profoundly positive things that the new government did was to announce a park for the castle and that suspended logging activities because if it hadn't have been done, Mill Creek would have been logged just as Hidden Creek did with the same disastrous results. Cutthroat trout, again, threatened. This gives you a sense of the distribution of cutthroat trout pre-1900, all the way from the headwaters to Lethbridge. Imagine you could fish for cutthroat trout from the bridge in Lethbridge. Well, the changes that have happened have meant that now that's the current distribution of West Slope cutthroat trout. They have declined 95% throughout their range. They only exist in Alberta in the Bowen Old Man watersheds. The Old Man watershed is the epicenter for cutthroat trout and it's not doing well. And it's another reason why a park status for the castle would be in the best interest of threatened fish populations. It's not so much that what's left is the best of the best, or even it's the last of the best, it's the last of the last. We thought things were inexhaustible. How many times do we need to learn this lesson? Things are not inexhaustible. From uh, the 1940s, when you could catch cutthroat trout of that size, you could catch them on every cast 
to the 1990s when I took a friend of mine out into the Carbondale and we fished hard to catch one fish. Maybe we're poor fishermen, but it does give a sense of what the march of time has been on a more personal basis. And so as Winston Churchill said about shifting benchmarks, although I'm sure he didn't have that in mind, the further you can look back, the more you can see forward. And that's why these impressions, these archival shots, these old black and white stringers of trout are important to give us a sense of where we've come from. Because if we don't appreciate where we've come from, we will never appreciate where we are and where we need to be. One of, this, one of these things was driven home to me when I was working as a fisheries biologist on regulatory changes and an old angler fixed me with a steely glare and he said, I would consider your best day of fishing as one of my worst. That's shifting benchmarks. So James Lovelock, the British ecologist, may have hit it on the head when he said, if we continue business as usual, our species will never again enjoy the lush and verdant world we had only a hundred years ago. And that's certainly true for fish populations in the eastern slopes. If we continue on the path we're on, we will not see that again. So we need to hold a mirror up, a mirror on the pace, the intensity, the temporal and the spatial consequences of what we do on the landscape and make some profoundly different decisions about what we want to do on that landscape. And so my simple recommendation is do what you can to stop making things worse and try to make things better. And so in that uh, sort of proverbial pounding your swords into uh, plowshares, maybe we should convert our OHVs into planters because that would be a profound step towards protecting fish populations and changing the complexion and the health of the eastern slopes. Now, will we get back to the cornucopia of native fish that we had at one time? Likely not. Can we protect areas so that we can have some sense of what it was like? Yes, we can, and we need to. And why would we? Well, wildlife, including native fish, they are part of our myths. They are part of our history. They're part of our lives. They're part of our landscapes. And they are also a measuring stick of the health of our world. They can slip to become only a part of our memory, and even worse, we can forget about them entirely. So Dr. Zeus, which all of us ascribe to, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So the point is, even if you don't fish, fish are important to you. Native fish are the gold seal of water quality. They help us understand whether or not our land management practices are successful at maintaining landscape integrity and health. If native fish populations in terms of their distribution, their health, their abundance are declining, it tells us a profound message that we have failed to manage landscapes effectively. And lastly, from a colleague in Montana, two of the most important gifts we can give our children are the ability to use information to make wise decisions 
and a quality environment in which there are still choices left to be made. I would hope that you would think about this in terms of native fish and what they represent and the profound implications of losing them or alternately the challenge of maintaining them. Thank you.